and welcome to another episode of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our guest this week is ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twellman. Now, Taylor is not an analytics guy in the sense that he's doing data analysis or developing metrics. He's a traditional television color commentator. So he obviously brings a different perspective than some of our guests, and that's why I wanted to have Taylor on the show. As a bit of background, I worked with Taylor for nine years when I was a researcher at ESPN, where my job was to take the best stats and notes and make them usable for television. That meant working with producers and talent who often weren't as familiar with data as I was, which is fine because that wasn't their job. I've also found from talking to data analysts who work for clubs and even companies outside of sports that my ESPN job and my true media job at times are very similar to their jobs in that we're both trying to communicate data to non-analytics types. At ESPN, it was producers and talent. For people at clubs, it's often coaches and players. And the ability to present complex information in easy-to-understand ways is an essential skill necessary for all these jobs. You can have the best model in the world, and if no one understands it, then it isn't worth anything. So Taylor was one of the people on the receiving end of my notes at ESPN, and I wanted to have him on to provide his perspective as a player and a broadcaster with regard to soccer and analytics. For those unfamiliar with Taylor, he played two seasons of college soccer at Maryland, where he was an All-American, before leaving to play two seasons with German club 1860 Munich. He then returned to the U.S. and played eight MLS seasons from 02 to 09. In 05, he won the MLS scoring title and MVP. He reached four MLS Cups, he won a U.S. Open Cup and a Superliga with the New England Revolution, and also scored six goals in 30 appearances for the United States. He's now been ESPN's lead soccer analyst since 2011. In our conversation, we'll talk about his sports background and the kind of objective information he looked for as a player, his prep process before broadcasting a game, what makes a stat good and useful for him now, the challenges of working information into a soccer broadcast, what's interesting to him about expected goals, what he wishes he could quantify, and what he'd like to get from player tracking data. Then Albert Larcada and I will be back to react and wrap things up. So without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman. We're joined here on Expected Value by ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman. Taylor, welcome to the show. I want to start because I think this is important to give kind of context on where you're coming from. Tell me about your sports background before growing pro. So beyond soccer, just kind of what's your general sports background growing up? Paul, that's a good question because it's more of everyone knew the Twelman last name in St. Louis predominantly because I had my dad, his, you know, brothers all played soccer. Uh, but they also played a ton of baseball, but my mom's side of the family, my grandfather played, uh, pro baseball, uh, 19 years, 11 in the majors. Um, his son, my uncle, uh, played professional golf, I think for, um, I want to say 22, 23 years on the PGA tour. So, you know, sports was always part of my background. Um, I always tell people as a joke, but kind of serious that if I would have came home and said I was going to be a fireman or an accountant, my family probably would have looked at me with eyes and looks and said, wait, what? You know, it was just kind of part of what I was supposed to do, so to speak. But, you know, for this type of discussion, numbers was always part of my life. I mean, I remember specifically, you know, being six, seven, eight, nine years old and my my grandparents and my, you know, uncles and my dad, everybody talking about over-unders and spreads 
you know, when your grandfather's a pro baseball player, obviously every stat is going to be part of that equation. And then throw in my uncle that plays golf. Think of it this way. He only knows his stats. He only knows greens and regulations, fairways and regulations, birdies, three putts, up and downs, you know, all of those, you know, scrambling stats, all of those stats. So my mom's side of the family predominantly, you know, was a stat-based background individual, so to speak, even though baseball is a team sport, you know, better than everyone. Uh, It's a team sport with individuals playing it with the way they do stats um, and, and info like that. My father... His two, you know, two brothers, three brothers, excuse me, that played either minor league baseball or professional soccer. You know, soccer wasn't an analytical sport, but scoring goals was. And from age six on, I knew I was going to be a forward. I knew that's what I liked. So obviously goals and assists was something that I was always aware of. So let's get into so your first MLS season was 02. Last game yep. was 09. Obviously, soccer data is at a very different place now than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. When you were a player, what sort of objective info? I mean, it could be data. It could just be tendencies, whatever. What did you want to know about opponents going into a game? Well, a lot of it, Paul, was, you know, for for us back then, and what, you know, we talked like it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. It wasn't. It, it, it's amazing where analytics has come in the sport of soccer football around the world. Mm-hmm. I, it, it tendencies was a big one for me. So for instance, I it, center backs 25 yards from their own goal. How did they defend? Would they ever get caught ball watching? Was there a half a second where they got caught ball watching? And quite honestly, Paul, I could notice that within five to 10 minutes of a game. So oftentimes mm-hmm. I would want to go into a game knowing that when the ball was on my left side, in our left midfielder, a left back was coming forward to whip in across. How did the guy marking me defend it? How was his body position? And then on the right side, and you know, it's no secret. Steve Ralston was my right midfielder for a long time. We had a great connection because we both saw the game the same way. And so that was the objective stuff you looked at. Was he right footed, left footed, the center back marking me? Did the defensive midfielders sit deep? You know, that's a, one thing that no one talks about in our sport. But if a number six, a defensive midfielder sits in front of the two center backs, doesn't leave, that changes where you're coming to receive the ball, where you're trying to impact the game and what strong side and what weak side was it for number six? You know, for instance, Chris Mm -hmm. Armas, you know, you played against the Chris Armas's, the Pablo Mascherani's of the world. They didn't really have a weak side. They weren't great with their left foot, but defending on the left side, they were as strong as defending on the right side. So you knew in games like that, you had to pick and choose when you showed to the ball into the midfield or when you wanted to play maybe a little bit vertical off the back shoulder. But now the analytics is something that I'm a little jealous of because it's way more information than we ever had. So if you, from what you know of, you know, let's say soccer data where it is today, what sort of things would you look to if you were a player today based on what's now available? Uh, most importantly, tendencies of where he he's going to play the ball. What is the center back look for? You know, you you see these, you know, and I love them even now covering the games. But I remember going into the 2014 MLS Cup final and it was L.A. versus the New England Revolution. And mm-hmm. I started to research because it was finally available. And you and I had just got done working the World Cup together. And I saw some of this at the World Cup, but center backs 
where they wanted to play the ball and how often they played the ball to the left back or right back. Robbie Keane went into that MLS Cup final scoring over 42% of his goals or some weird number on the left side, Paul. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of info where you knew Robbie felt more confident with LA going down their left side than he did on the right. But on the other hand, on the right side was a guy by the name of Mike McGee. So Mike McGee wasn't playing technically on the right side. He was playing more inside. So you just, I, I saw a lot of tendencies right around 2014 that now Mm -hmm. I looked at it and said, Oh boy, I would have loved that. I would have absolutely loved the opposition center back knowing that 35% of the time or more, he wanted to go down the left side because I would take that away from him and literally force him to go down the right and see what comes out of that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where you could see little tendencies via analytics instead of the eye test to confirm either your eye test was correct or your eye test was wrong. Uh, But that's a big one for me is, is how I could defend, even though as a center forward, most people listening to this would say, why would a center forward worry about that? Mm -hmm. But it's defending those opposition in the, in that team in possession, because Paul, if I take them down their weak side, when we turn the ball over, now I've got them in a precarious position. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. I mean, we say analytics and sometimes it scares people off, but a lot of it is just, it's like shortcuts, you know, it's yes. instead of watching, you don't have to watch whatever the last five LA galaxy games or every game they played this season. Yep. You can, you know, a few clicks and you have a, whatever, a heat map or a passing chart of where this guy often goes. And it just saves you, you know, it's something you would pick up on if you watched a few games, but instead of taking four hours, you can do it in four minutes or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. And especially like if you're playing, absolutely. I mean, that's the most important part of the whole thing is that it's time, you know, time consuming. You can literally get answers quickly. The other one is, and to go back to the defensive midfielder, you know, if a guy plays East West or backwards all the time, if you take that away, He's extremely one comfortable or two. If that's his natural tendency, he's going to play at times a no look ball or mm-hmm. a ball that's going to come backwards, not looking where you are. Paul, that's a huge, that's a huge plus for you yeah. in that manner. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Information is power in a lot of ways there. Absolutely. Um, so you've been ESPN's lead soccer analyst for closing in on a decade now. Taking a step back, like beyond stats, just tell me what your normal prep process is like for a typical weekend game. Typical weekend game, first is you always. I always watch the full ninety minutes of the both teams the week before, right? Mm-hmm. So you look at that game and see, you know, what happened there, and then you start talking or reading a bunch of stuff around the league. Uh, see, you know, seeing tendencies if a team's lost six in a row, like I just did Portland, San Jose, I needed to figure out why had San Jose lost eight of their last 10 going into the final game of the year. Right. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, when you talk to the op- opposing coaches that were in that game or other situations and players, they dominated the game, Paul. Like I, it was amazing how San Jose dominated the game for 55 minutes and then red cards, uh, the system was too tiring, you know, so that's an example like that. Uh, the one thing we lack, I know you didn't ask me this, but we don't have enough tactical analysis within our media landscape within the United States. We don't now part of that. And I think this is why this podcast is interesting is I think majority of our Paul cars of the world 
you grew up in so many other sports. You just asked me about my sports background. Soccer was part of it, but mm-hmm. so was the other aspects. Writers didn't grow up with the sport. So yeah. I think that tendency is going to change as we get older, mm-hmm. but relying on, you know, six, seven, eight, nine reporters on tactical analysis, Paul, that just mm-hmm. doesn't exist. It just yeah. doesn't, it, it's just not here. And I think that's fair. I mean, I can speak for myself, you know, <clears throat> I came to the sport, you know, it was the 94 World Cup and the start of MLS is what really drew me in. So I was a teenager at that point. So sometimes I'm a little almost uncomfortable or hesitant to really like dive into tactics because, yeah. you know, it's not as ingrained in me as, you know, something like baseball or basketball that I was playing since I was, you know, four years old. So I think you're right that it'll change, you know, as the sport just continues to mature because we always talk about how the league's only you know 20 whatever years old right and it's the same thing for whatever fans and media and analysts and and everything so i think that'll come around it's just going to take time like you said yeah it just exactly it's no different than you know my position being as an analyst but prepping and whatnot you have your three or four reliable sources obviously you were a huge part of mine uh when you were at espn for us so you could send me 10 notes five notes and the stat or the trend that you send kind of can help me point me in a right direction for tactically analyzing a situation. And that's where I think I used, you know, it's part of just me growing up at ESPN without this, but I used it and said, well, wait a minute, if I'm the guy that played the sport and kind of understand it, even though I'm still growing and learning with each and every game. And as the sport evolves, I can still use the stats and analytics to help point me in a right direction tactically to point something out. And that is where I don't use stats a lot in my broadcast, Mm -hmm. but if there is a glaring stat or one that supports my theory or observation, so to speak, then I use it and really dive into it. And you know that better than anyone. I try to use two or three stats a game where, listen, the viewer at home, Paul, you watch games all the time. You don't want to hear 15, 20 stats. But if right. you hear two or three that really stand out and actually, you know, support the analyst or play-by-plays theory or observation, then it's actually more important. Right. Yeah. You use them judiciously and it it works out well. I guess one example of this I know that I remember is, I think this was the year after Sasha Kleshin had his 20 assists. Yes. And you know, we're whatever halfway through the season and he had like two assists. So everyone's like, what's wrong with Sasha question? And like the underlying numbers of his expected assists and such basically said, it's almost the same as the year before and nobody's finishing and blah, blah, blah. And you took that. And this is kind of leads into my next question. Like you were able to, I don't think you said the number, which is fine, but you basically said, look, questions fine. They're not finishing. You know, you said a little more eloquently than that, but that speaks to the challenge you have of even in soccer with, which we think of as a, you know, kind of a spacious game from a TV standpoint, you have Mm -hmm. 10, 15 seconds to make a point. So like, how do you, just kind of deal with that when you're trying to figure out working in stats or notes or whatever it is to get your point across quickly. Yeah, that that's the most difficult aspect of it because, you know, when you get into TV uh, and our former bosses, you know, so many of them, whether it was Amy, Chris Alexopoulos, Tom McNeely, mm-hmm. Jed Drake, whoever they may be, Paul, and you know those guys very well, they yep. would say, watch other sports. My comeback after about six months of doing that saying, well, none of these other sports are like soccer. None of them. I mean, Mm -hmm. football, quite American football is the easiest sport to call. Stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. You know, the routine, you've got the replays. The only time football becomes a little precarious is actually in a hurry up offense where Mm -hmm. 
you know, they don't know what's coming. The producer doesn't know what's coming. The director doesn't know what's coming. So I watched a lot of hockey and I'm a hockey guy anyways, but I watched hockey because there were tendencies in hockey that you could take into the sport. But Paul, the best thing that ESPN ever did for me was literally make me call. I called games for my first two years with 14 different play-by-play people, 14. Mm. And it, it threw me into the fire. Uh, it helped me very quickly understand the different ways a play-by-play guy can call a game and how a color guy can get in, get out. Um, but to answer your question, it all depends on the game. If you're doing a game in front of 5,000 people and it's zero zero and the game's really slow, you're going to have more than 10 to 15 seconds to actually elaborate, have a conversation, entertain for lack of a better word, and try to keep the viewer mm-hmm. engaged. But if you're doing U.S. Ghana at the World Cup, you don't need to say a lot. Right. You know what I mean? If you're doing yeah. Manchester United versus Manchester City, you don't need to say a lot. So the atmosphere can dictate a lot. And I often find when the atmosphere is as good as it is and at the top, then that actually dictates you've got 10 seconds, my friend, get in, get out the play by play guy. That's his game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very it's very unique. Paul, yeah. you, you know, this yeah. scene, the Ian Darks and the John Champions, Adrian Healy's and all the guys we work with at ESPN that those guys are they grew up where soccer football around the world. It's a play by play 75 percent of the time where every American sport is the opposite. It's the analyst 75% of the time. So, I mean, it's been a great challenge for me. I love it. I still Mm -hmm. am learning. I mean, this is my ninth year, and there's still games. I'm doing full-time games now with John Champion, and I'm still learning where he's different than Ian. But that's why I enjoy it. I think the most, other than being a coach, general manager, this got my attention because each game is different, and it's kind of like prepping as a player. Yeah, the rhythm, I think, of a soccer game is one of the most challenging things to find. Like I said, they're all different and the importance and all that stuff. Let me ask you, what are your suggestions for data types? Like someone like me, and you know, you've mm-hmm. told me these things before, when getting information across to someone who maybe isn't as deep in the numbers or as familiar with some of the stats, what's important for someone like me to know when trying to convey that stuff to someone like you? I think the reason why you were very good at doing it is because you're a soccer fan. Right. The hardest part is when you get the stats, the stats and analytical people that actually don't understand the sport and they are really good at numbers. And then you're looking at them going, guy, girl, I get this. But what, 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 you know, like you understood the sport, you know, Antonio, we've got a bunch of guys at ESPN, thankfully in the soccer department that understand the sport. So that helps. But my thought has always been this. And I've said this to everyone. For an analytical person that where you could give me, if I said, Paul Carr, I need a thousand numbers, you could find me a thousand numbers. Right. I think the most important thing for the, for people like yourself is finding the four to six numbers for that game that stand out that you look at and say, you know what, this viewer, this is going to catch the viewer's eye. And again, it goes back to my point. If a play by play guy, and there are some around the world that give stats the whole game. Now it's on deaf ears, but if you give two to four stats a game that stand out and you guys know this better than I do, because you'll know a discrepancy in a number versus 
what I would look at because, for instance, expected goals, and I know you and I are going to get into this in a minute, mm -hmm. but I could see a expected goals number and go, oh, well, that's not that far off. And then you could look at me and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Compared to the mean of the league, compared to where they are, and explain the number, then all of a sudden that 1.4 to 1.1, you're looking at me going, dude, that's a lot. Yeah, That's a huge number. And that's where I think um, – analysts like myself still have a long way to go because so much of us, and, and you know me, Paul, I don't fall in this category, but a lot of people will fall. Well, I played the sport. You didn't, that doesn't really matter anymore. You know what I mean? That, and, and I don't know if it ever did, but just because I played doesn't mean I have a better knowledge right. than different. you do. It's different. Absolutely. And sometimes that experience can elaborate your numbers and say those numbers don't mean anything. But other times your numbers could look at me and actually I'm like, wow, that number actually supports my theory or actually debunks my theory. So I need to be a little more observant of that. My problem, yeah. Paul, with analytics is watching Major League Baseball. It's been uh -huh. a real tough one for me because quite honestly, why do we have managers now? I mean, they look at the way <laughs> Dave, right? Look at the way Dave Roberts managed the Dodgers. In yeah. that game five against the Nationals, everyone's got a binder next to them. And it's almost like the binder's dictating that. Well, if that's the case, Paul, you and I should just manage because <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're going by the numbers. And I'm not saying the numbers are wrong, right. but I, I don't it, – it's taking it too far in the track man and all those numbers. It's amazing to me how quickly baseball has become – has taken another level – to analytics that I thought no baseball could never get there. And it has. Yeah. I like something. I think it was, I read recently by the Frank Reich, the Colts coach said he's got like analytics guys more or less, you know, kind of in his ear throughout the game. And they tell him if it's fourth down, they would say, you know, the numbers suggest this. And he would take that and then add his own intuition. So his example is something like, you know, it's fourth and two from his own 35 in the first quarter or something. And yes. The numbers, I read that article yeah, too. I never say go too. for it. And he's like, yeah, I, I get that. But there's some point where kind of the common sense, the the coach sense, or, you know, maybe it's something that, look, their offensive line is getting destroyed and they can't do it. I think you're right that there's the numbers and then there's still, there's always needs to be a human element for whatever the case may be, body language, strategy, something like that. Agreed. Um, let's let's get in this expected goals thing because we had a good, I think, conversation about it in Kansas City earlier this year. Set the table for me. Like, what are your general thoughts on the stat as it used from kind of a broadcaster standpoint? From a broadcaster standpoint, I still think if I use expected goals on a broadcast, I think, and I could be so wrong in this, I think 60% of the viewer, if not more, doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to, then you have to, <laughs> this is the pickle. Now I've got to describe that stat in 10 to 15 right. seconds. Yeah. And that's, and that's still for, and for the listeners, I still don't fully understand it. I still don't fully agree with it. And yet it's opened my eyes. Right. I'm actually looking at it more because now what I've done, Paul, is I'll watch a full 90 minute game and I'm going to guess the expected goals or how many goals that team should have scored. And I'm telling you right now, nine out of 10 times I'm wrong. <laughs> the eye test is sometimes, you know, just not that great. Like, 
And sometimes it's the fallacy, not fallacy, but just the expectacles issue of its value, I think, is really in like this big picture. You kind of look at it at a macro level of what it can tell you about how a team does over season. And these in, measuring the individual chances isn't always great just because there's so many variables you can't put into it or anything like that. Now, do you think just the name, do you think the name is an obstacle for a lot of people? No, I actually okay. think it's a clever way of saying it because I'm not okay. totally sure Take the word expected out. I'm not totally sure you can find another word to alliterate what you're trying to say without it being a phrase. Goals should have scored. You know what I'm right. saying? Then you get into it. So expected goals doesn't bother me. For the listeners at home, here's the best example if you're an MLS fan. LA Galaxy versus LAFC. Zlatan scores a hat trick. It's on ESPN. Awesome game. And I remember after the game thinking, wow, the Galaxy dominated. They absolutely dominated. I remember Tyler Miller made two saves off his face. You know, they hit the post and all this. And I saw you after this game, actually. That was the game, Paul, where I was like, oh, they dominated. And the expected goals was higher for LAFC than the Galaxy. Yeah, it was a weird one because like Zlatan's goals were, you know, they were longer range there was Zlatan goals, basically, you know, that aren't going to be scored a lot. So they were low expectations. Oh, his first goal, his first goal, the expectation had to be 0.1, if yeah. at all. Or, yep. you know what I mean? Because there's no way. Now, yeah. I'd still argue a mm-hmm. player, and this is where this gets tricky, a player of the caliber of Zlatan right. Ibrahimovic. Right. Well, does that come into the equation? Yeah, there's, a, there's another level of expected goals someday that I think could be not necessarily player-specific, but something along those lines where, you know, this shot for Messi is obviously we know like a free kick for Messi is much better than a free kick for, you know, me or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, like there's, Paul, there's Paul, a lot of I even think of myself, I think of myself as a player and I remember looking and I would have, let's say four or five shots a game and I'd end up with a goal, maybe two. And yet I looked at it and said, well, two of those shots were headers right. from 20 yards out. 18 yards out that I tried yeah. to knock it to the back post, but the goalie came out. And so the stats guy would, or stats woman would then knock it as a shot. I'm like, no, I actually only had two <laughs> shots today. Yeah. And what's weird is the coaches would then come after and go, listen, we just need like, th- there was always this conversation about myself, even Robbie Keane. I'm trying to think of some other guys, Chris Wondolowski, not the same where just give him a chance. If he gets two chances, he's got one goal. Right. Mm -hmm. Wando, when you looked at his numbers and talked to coaches and players, he needed three or four chances that needs to be in the expected goals. I personally believe, because what if you've got Lewandowski and he's got one chance and ends up in the back of the net and it was a a half a chance, so to speak? I don't know. Is it a half a chance when it's him? Maybe Mm -hmm. not. But there is some value to it, Paul. I yeah. know that, that there's value to it, and I know I need to grow a little bit in trying to figure that out. It's just nine out of ten times when I think I've got it figured out, I'm like, oh, wow, I was off. I think the good thing is the way you were just describing like shots that you took, it's kind of what expected goals tries to do. You know, you said that, look, these two headers from 20 yards, like those weren't even shots. And that's kind of where expected goals would count them as, you know, 0.01, 0.02, you know, one or two percent chance of getting right. in because – because they're from long range, it's a header, et cetera. Let's kind of move to the speculative place. What is there that you wish you could quantify in soccer? What stat do you kind of wish existed out there? Being a fantasy football, basketball, baseball guy, mm-hmm. I think 
the sport of soccer needs somehow to quantify a defender, mm-hmm. quantify a number eight, a two-way midfielder. That goals and assists isn't going to be there. But honestly, when you watch him play, he's the best player on the field. Right. You yeah. know, Some, something of that nature. You know, like aspect of controlling it, space or limiting. Yes. Like, put it this way, like. How would analytics define Xavi as the best center midfielder Barcelona's history? I don't know. Could they? Right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe some of the passing numbers. But yeah, it, it might be tough to, you know, what is Xavi and what is just Barcelona in general? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's got to be a way that stats and analytics can tell me that, you know, Virgil van Dijk is the best center back in the world because right. my eyes tell me he is. Right. Right. And I don't I, I don't need goals. You know, clearances right. is uh, helped it a little bit, you know, but the ability to play a ball over 50 yards, his ball to Mane and Champions League was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So it, that's where I think it needs to go. And quite honestly, Paul, that that's what I hear the most from like front office technical staffs is, is they still rely on the eye test. bud. you know right. what I mean? They still yeah. rely on watching games and seeing a player firsthand where I think there may be another level where how do I find a two-way midfielder and there's three or four, you know, groups of analytics or stats that can say, Oh no, this, this is the kind of guy you want. Yeah. You know, I want a guy, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And some of that's there and it's learning to trust metrics or make metrics better and, and all that sort of thing with the, with the player tracking data that's coming, you know, it's in some places already. I think it's coming to MLS soon. So we're talking like where the player is, you know, at, however many times every second and stuff like that, that's going to be out there in the near future. What do you think can be done with that? Or what would you look for once this player tracking data gets up and running and more available? Oh man. I mean, there's so much you could look at. I mean, listen, there's player tracking, GPS, that kind of stuff. It's been there, but if it's available to us, if it's available to the consumer, if it's really there for, you know, everyone to, kind of consume and understand. I mean, there's so much you can look at, you know, Chris Wondolowski, let's use him again. He's got over 150 goals in MLS. Where did he score him? How did he score him? What was his movement to get to that space? You know, there's a lot of things I try to articulate sometimes. Well, sometimes not where the movement off the ball opens up space. Well, imagine if you could actually show that you can show it via video, but trying to, relay that through the truck and trying to get my replay people to pull it up, pull it together. That's a tough one, Paul. Yep. So now, you know, if, if the player tracking is available and everyone's got the app up or the service up within the truck, and then I can give it to the consumer. I mean, off the top of my head, that's the first thing that I think of. Yeah. What would you use are, it for? I think off the ball runs are interesting because it's so often, sometimes it's not even on camera. Uh, yes. I saw a presentation a couple weeks ago. It was, it was about exactly this. The first step of just trying to kind of lump off the ball runs together. So, you know, broadly speaking, what kind of runs does this guy make? This angle, that angle, uh, what's effective against this team, things along those lines. I think I think that's a really interesting possibility that I'm sure I'm sure some teams are doing stuff like this already. Uh, and it'll yeah, become more but the problem is, the data is yeah, there. the problem is, Paul, all, everyone that tells me whether it's Liverpool, you know, other people that I know very closely about this is that. That, yep. you know, HIPAA laws and whatnot. So it's yeah. technically, you know, I don't think you can make it public if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah, it'll take time. I mean, I know the NFL fought this for a few years and some of the NGS type data is just now coming out. And yeah, there's definitely Players Association, HIPAA, all these 
things to deal with. In a not so great transition, but speaking of health, we're on the tail end of Concussion Awareness Week, which is obviously a big thing for you. And it seems like it's going well for you and Think Taylor Foundation. What's kind of the latest for you guys on that front? Yeah, I think the most important thing there, Paul, is that U.S. soccer is being more proactive over the last 24 months than they have been in the entire realm of player safety, but especially head injuries. So this year we'll have over 4 million kids um, take the Think Taylor pledge. Um, We're doing it through U.S. soccer, the DAs, um, but then also just through you know, U.S. soccer in general, giving it out and it's non-DAs are now getting involved. So it's just a ton of people being proactive about being educated, being honest and being supportive around the realm of uh, traumatic brain injury. So it's pretty cool to see because I think people need to be more proactive than reactive uh, when when your son or daughter or even yourself gets a concussion. The other thing, too, Paul, is it's not just a sports thing. Anyone can car crashes, bike bike accidents, whatever it is. So it's it's remarkable how quickly it went from something very little um, here in Massachusetts to now all of a sudden U.S. soccer having a huge part, you know, and running with it, so to speak. Yeah, it's been cool seeing all the different state associations too uh, the last week or so, getting all that stuff to trickle down to the local level as well. Yeah, and it's non-evasive, you know what I right. mean? Because it's, yeah. it's not like we're doing anything. We're just saying you need to own your own brain. You only got yeah. one of them, so you might as well make it last a lifetime. Yeah, it's so intuitive. It's not, hey, we have to draw blood and test something. It's, you know, let's just uh, think about this for a minute. Right. All right. We're going to wrap this up with a number of quick hitter questions. Going to run through a bunch of stuff just to throw at you. So let's start with this. What is your favorite number, like your lucky number type? Oh, wow. Good one. Three. Because? All good things come in three. Uh, I wore high school basketball, baseball, soccer, football. Mm -hmm. I would have worn it as a pro, but then everyone told me, you know, a center forward can't wear number three. And then right. I wore number three in the all-star game and I was MVP that year. So ah. that debunks that theory. Yeah, you showed um, them. Yeah, exactly. I really showed them. Well, honestly, just love the number three. Yeah. Always have, always will. And it kind of runs in my family, but I don't know why. It's always three. Yeah. I know you're a big golfer. What is the favorite golf course that you have played? Oh, that's a good one. That's a, oh, you're really putting me on the spot right now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm going to answer two or three, it. If you well, put it this way. I love old. I okay. love old stories. I love showing up at Shinnecock and you walk in and you see just so many pictures and the floor creaks when you walk in and the caddies have a million stories. I love Wingfoot. I love old stories, Quaker Ridge. So the Northeast for me yeah, has been story. a real enjoyment. But, Paul, if I'm being honest, it's Whisper Rock in Arizona. And it's not old. It's very, you know, it's on the newer side of things. It's 36 holes. Uh, The mountains are in the background. It's the camaraderie. It's the people. You're not allowed to play there, even as a member, if you're an ass. I mean, it's just amazing. Like, the whole thing, it's, and and there's multiple tour pros there. And some tour pros can't even get in. I'm not going to give you big names, but massive names that can't get in because they're not, you know, well-received. They're not nice. They're not good people, that kind of thing. Whisper Rock would be my answer to it. And I just kind of, you know, threw a wrinkle to my whole old story, but it is what it is. What's the top course left on your bucket list? Uh, It's Augusta. Has has been, always will be. Uh, My daughter was born. Uh, three days after I was invited to play Augusta, 
Um, I threw out a group text to my entire family to take a vote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And everyone said I should go play Augusta. And there was just something in my heart where I was like, am I really going to miss the birth of my child because I played Augusta National? And there's part of me that regrets me not actually doing that. Yeah, I bet you'll get there, though. (laughs) Uh, okay, St. Louis has an MLS team coming in 2022, which is obviously an important thing to you. When we'll just say soccer people are going to be going to St. Louis for a game or whatever, what's a place, restaurant, tourist attraction, whatever that you're going to say you have to go eat this or do this while you're in St. Louis for a game? Well, I think uh, everyone when they talk about St. Louis, you talk about the hill, and that's where you know all the immigrants came over. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where you know the 1950 World Cup team, all those players were from there. So there's multiple restaurants on the hill, but there's an interesting thing going on is I think when you see this stadium go up, I also think you're going to see a whole new St. Louis be built. I think there's going to be a newer cosmopolitan type feel where you want to go downtown. You want to go down and have a meal. You want to be downtown and walk around the stadium and stop at a beer and and do that kind of thing. But for someone that's never been to St. Louis, you want to go to somewhere on the hill. It's great Italian food anywhere you're going to get there. And it's something there. If you're not, and you want to do something a little off the beaten path, Annie guns is the best restaurant you will ever eat at. And that is in, you know, that's about 10 minutes from the house where I grew up. It's in West Western part of uh, St. Louis. It's in Chesterfield, Missouri. It is the best restaurant you'll ever eat at. All right. I'm going to put that on the list. Best or maybe favorite goal that you ever scored? Oh, that's Can a good you remember one, buddy. the goals. <laughs> oh, wait, did I play? Uh, I've, concussions. I've been told. I don't know. The problem is, Paul, when you have concussions, as long as the microwave doesn't go off when you're on the cell phone, then you won't pee in your pants. So um, <laughs> that's a good one. I scored a goal in high school where it was 2 2. And my brother was a freshman and he was like 5'8", 110 pounds. And the coach yeah. put him in and he whipped in a ball and I scored on it. I, It's weird, Paul. Like, I love that goal still to this yeah. day because yeah. my brother and I never played together after that. But mm-hmm. I just wish one of my goals would have won a MLS Cup for the Revs. That's, uh-huh. So, like, one of those MLS Almost. Cup goals where you're like, ah, oh, man. But I don't really have a favorite. It's weird. I really don't. All right, that's going to wrap things up for us here on Expected Value. Taylor Twelman, ESPN Soccer Analyst, thanks for joining us here. Dude, this was a blast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks again to Taylor Twelman for taking the time to talk with us during a busy international week. Taylor will be calling MLS playoffs for ESPN all month, starting with Minnesota United hosting the LA Galaxy on Sunday. You can follow Taylor on Twitter at Taylor Twelman and check out thinktaylor.org for more on Concussion Awareness Week and the good work his foundation is doing. I'm joined now in the True Media Network studios by Albert Larcata, True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert, this podcast, we focus more on using and communicating data from a player and media perspective. So you were obviously at ESPN for several years and you're familiar with this environment somewhat. What did you take away from what Taylor had to say? Yeah, so I guess my main takeaway 
perhaps a pretty obvious one, but it's know your audience. And that's true whether you're working on the media side with analysts like Taylor or whether you're feeding information to coaches or technical staff on the team side. But you know they're going to have their own thoughts, their own opinions that they've gathered from other non-data sources, usually video or in some cases, firsthand experience. Um, so get to know them, get to know how they learn, uh, why they learn, when they learn. Taylor's example is a good one that he mentioned. He used to watch the previous match for each team that he's about to call. And that way, if you know that you can do the same. And then with the data driven information that you have, you're prepared, um, when he comes to you with something he saw in that match and you're able to confirm that thing he saw, refute that thing he saw with more evidence beyond that one match of video that you each saw. So again, yeah, like with Taylor, you can have some information ready for that match um, and then expand into other things that he might not know. But yeah, I'm, I'm more curious for your thoughts on this. You, I know you worked with Taylor quite a bit at ESPN and Alexi before that and a lot of the soccer analysts. What was your primary takeaway? I could go on about this for hours. I mean, this is what I did for 10 years, basically. Um, so this is right in my wheelhouse. I guess I want to mostly expound on something Taylor and I talked about because I think it was a perfect example of several key steps in communicating with data. We talked about a, a Sasha question note that I think was from 2017. And question was coming off a 20 assist season with the Red Bulls. And this first part of the year, he only had a couple assists or so. And the natural question was, what's wrong with question? What's wrong with the Red Bulls attack? And from a stat standpoint, as I dug into the numbers, the gist of the answer was, look, his underlying stats are fine. Expected assist looks okay. New York really is just underachieving its finishes. They're still getting good shots. They're just not finishing them. And so Taylor talked about how important it is to find key numbers for key stories of a game and this check that box. And he also referenced how he uses number two, numbers to inform his analysis. And this stat also kind of checked that box. It empowered him to say that, look, Question's doing fine. He's not the issue here. New York has other issues elsewhere. And Taylor didn't even use, the, again, the number on the broadcast, but it just made him more confident in saying it. And the numbers and the stats themselves, in this case, didn't matter. Like, literally, what is the number as much as the context did, which said that he's underachieving his expected assist total. I think it was more than anyone in the league or close to it at that point. So all that, for me, kind of added up to being aware of how stats are used. You know, I would have loved to write a whole article at that time, diving into the hows and the whys of question underachieving his expected assists that season. And by the way, by the end of the season, he had 17 and everything was all as well. Um, but TV doesn't have time for that. So as we as analysts, you know, some people like us who are working that direction, we have to simplify things. So all I put in that note for Taylor was that, look, questions underachieving his expected assist total more than anyone in the league. His numbers really look a lot like the previous season. That's what was going to catch Taylor's eye, and it did. And that's what worked on TV. So it's kind of like what you said, learning what and how to communicate, learning how data will be used. These are all crucial things to gaining acceptance when you're working with non-analytics types. So that's my TED Talk, if you will, uh, for this subject. <laughs> in, in two minutes, that's my TED Talk. Yeah, it, it's funny, actually. You, you, as you're saying all that, I'm reminded of our former colleague, Dean Dean Oliver. I used to work with him at ESPN mm -hmm. and then here at True Media, now he's with the Wizards. That every time he would, you know, speak at these conferences and you know talk to students in hallways at conferences and whatnot, and he would always say that he'd be like, "Whenever I meet people, whenever I talk to GMs, whenever I talk to players, anything like that, I never bring up numbers first. Mm -hmm. I never bring up a hard, you know, twenty six. Yep. It's always speaking their language. I obviously know the numbers and I know kind of the story I want to tell with the numbers, but 
it's never actually saying the numbers first. It's always speaking in words and phrases that they understand and that they want to hear. And then you eventually get into the yeah. number side. After. Figure out how to quantify it. When we first started tracking stuff at ESPN, this is before we had Opta data. So I think this is the 2009 Confed Cup. We were talking to Alexi Lalas, who is the studio analyst. And what are you interested in tracking? Because we were literally just going to have a person or two kind of tracking some things during games. And if you know anything about Alexi, he loves set pieces. And so we obviously tracked set pieces for him. I don't remember if anything we tracked actually made air, but at the very least, he was asking us questions and it laid the groundwork. So then, you know, within a year, we had full Opta data and a true media site. And Alexi could start asking questions about how many touches a guy had, what regions of the field, certain times of the game, things like that. Again, it seems kind of obvious, but. When you're shifting, I think sometimes from, we'll say, academic world or very data-focused worlds into dealing with coaches or whoever it might be, analysts, talent, people less familiar with the data, it's just something you, you got to be aware of to make that communication work in a really good way. All right. Thanks, Albert. That'll wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. My thanks again to ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman for joining us on the show. If you're interested in hearing more about stats and analytics at ESPN, be sure to check out last week's podcast with Jeff Bennett, the vice president of ESPN's Stats and Information Group. Shared tons of good info about founding ESPN's analytics group, developing metrics like total QBR, and more. As always, please rate and review the show wherever you find the podcast. Feedback is always welcome via email, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com, or on Twitter at truemediasports or at Paul Carr. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone at True Media Networks, I am Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.